Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas, and by Peony on Magazine Street. Exceptional women's and children's clothes and gifts. From our socially distanced virtual lunch table in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Aschuti, Tulane University Freeman School of Business professor and director of the Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. If you're like most people, once a month or so, you take a look at your credit card statement and your bills. If you're paying out more each month than your income, you're having trouble sleeping at night. Then you hear about people who are celebrities in our society because of the amount of money they make with their earth-shattering businesses like Amazon, Tesla, Uber, and Spotify. Amazon lost billions of dollars for years before they became profitable. Tesla is barely profitable today, and Uber and Spotify are losing millions every month. But apparently, the people who run these companies don't have any problems sleeping at night, and their shareholders and investors continue to believe in them in a way that your credit card company doesn't believe in you. What's going on here is not injustice. It's not one law for the rich and another for the poor. What's going on here is all about a relationship, our relationship to money. I'm not suggesting that you just change your perspective about money and you'll miraculously come out of it like Jeff Bezos. But what I'm saying is, if you know where to get money, a whole new world of business and a chance to make money opens up to you. So where do you get money? Well, you may have heard of the infamous bank robber Willie Sutton, who explained why he robbed banks by saying, that's where the money is. And he's right. Locally, you don't need to rob Hancock Whitney Bank to get a hold of their money. They're primarily focused on giving it to you. You do, at some point, have to give it back. But the theory is that if they make it easy for you to access capital, you'll be able to make enough money to pay them back and make plenty for yourself as well. Because Hancock Whitney is a sponsor of Out to Lunch, we're taking advantage of that relationship today by having Billy Hoffman join us. Billy is Senior Vice President of Corporate Banking at Hancock Whitney. Billy, welcome Out to Lunch. Good morning. Thanks for having me. When you think about business investment, you probably think about cities. Cities are where the money is. That's where you find employees, and that's where the concentrations of customers are. But the reality is... 97% of the landmass of the United States is rural. Yes, you heard that right, 97%. Now check this out. 80% of the population lives in the 3% of the country that is not rural. If you're one of the 20% of the population who lives in the vastness of rural America, you need access to the same services and amenities as your counterparts in the city. Things like broadband and capital to start and run a business. And that's what Caitlin Kane provides as Vice President and Director of Rural America at an organization called Local Initiative Support Corporation, or LISC. LISC is one of the largest lenders in the U.S. They also invest money. They're the first real estate investment fund to specialize in affordable housing, and they give money away as grants. Caitlin runs the rural division of LISC from her office in New Orleans. Caitlin, welcome out to lunch. 
Thanks, Peter. It's a pleasure being here with you this morning. Caitlin, I think when most of us hear that someone has a job like yours, the vice president and director of rural America at the Local Initiative Support Corporation, we're impressed, but we really don't know what that means. It's easy to imagine what Billy does. He has an office in a bank in New Orleans and local business people come in and talk to him. What happens when you're in New Orleans and your clients in rural America are everywhere but here? Are you running a division of a nationwide bank here on Zoom, or are you mostly managerial, relying on people in satellite offices around the country? No, that's, a, that's a great question, Peter. And so much of the work that LISC does through Rural LISC itself, we're, we're nationwide. So I actually have a team of about 22 individuals scattered throughout the entire country. And really the infrastructure and the heartbeat of Rural LISC comes through our partnership network. So we really rely on our on-the-ground partners, which are usually community development corporations, EDOs, business development organizations that are about almost close to 100 strong within our role this network to really provide that immediate feedback from a community development perspective in terms of challenges and opportunities that they're witnessing within their particular region to then help us kind of internalize and prioritize investment opportunities where we think we can really move the, move the needle and have a substantial um, difference and impact in rural communities. And Caitlin, what's the difference between the needs of urban folks and rural folks in, in terms of the, their communities? Well, you know, you had brought it up before, Peter, that 97% of the landmass in the U.S. is actually rural. So the majority of, uh, you know, quite a substantial percentage of our GDP, actually about close to 10% of our GDP, is directly derived from rural America. These are the areas that are providing natural resources for mining and energy and recreation, agriculture, fishing, uh, to directly support the, the national economy. So jobs and workforce issues are incredibly significant for a rural community and rural communities are so important for the nation, but the nation as a whole really lacks a rural investment strategy. And so, so much of the work that we do at Rural Risk is really trying to shine a light and highlight the significance of rural America and the difference between the needs and opportunities of rural communities and those are their, 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 their metro peer equivalents, right? So a, a lot of the challenges in rural America is one of distance. You know, the, the, the geographic barriers between being in a rural community and being far away from a metro area. Um, we've seen that so much right, lately, really as part of this, this, this pandemic in terms of the connectivity challenges that we have. So a lot of these rural communities are really struggling with internet connectivity we have about a quarter of our rural communities actually don't have internet connection at all. And that's the one I hear about the most and uh, uh, in terms of broadband and, and such. But Billy, as I was alluding to earlier, for a lot of people, the fear of borrowing money and owing money can be an obstacle to making money. I, I know Hancock Whitney prides itself on working with clients in a personal way to help people who might not have a background in business, but who know a lot about their own particular business. In your case, you're a person who knows a lot about business, but not a lot about saying the, the nail salon business. So how does that work from your side of the desk? Do you have to become an expert on, on manicure to help a person who wants to grow their nail salon business? Thank goodness, no. Um, but uh, what's interesting about Hancock Whitney as an institution, um, you're right, uh, our primary strength is dealing with privately held companies. Um, and helping them succeed. So we're 
for lack of a better description, generalists when it comes to lending for the most part. Um, so we see a lot of different type of businesses, a lot of different types of structure. Uh, so what we learned from one business um, is definitely practical for uh, a business that from a nail salon to a uh, highway construction company. There are certain things all successful businesses do very well, um, whether it be management or how they manage their finances or their people or their processes. So um, that's what we've always kind of focused on, to get to learn uh, what makes our customers tick, for lack of a, a better description, um, and then try to apply that and help them get the funds needed to grow and be successful. And Billy, I think a lot of people would have uh, your role a little bit misunderstood. I think some people think you're behind a desk with your feet up and all these, a line of people are coming in to ask for money, but you're really out there pitching your services. That's exactly right. So um, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess, in, in our industry, um, all banks have money and we take depositors' money in and we lend it out and we make a return for our stockholders. So everybody offers generally the same services. Um, some do certain things better than others and, and vice versa. Uh, but what we try to do um, is get to know the CPAs, attorneys, and other successful business people in town um, and find referrals in that fashion. So uh, I've never actually physically worked in a bank branch. Um, in our old building before we moved to the Hancock Whitney Center. Uh, we had to walk through the branch to get to our office, but uh, I've never physically worked in a bank branch. So I do have an office way up, um, as opposed to Caitlin, our group, which is about the same size, we're about 50 feet apart rather than uh, spread out across the country. So there's a lot of interaction between us. Um, and we generally go out to see most of our clients or prospects. Billy, I, one of the questions I think a lot of people are asking about banking now is, is banking going more bricks and mortar or less bricks and mortar? I just, I see banks close branches and I see other ones opening. What's happening? Well, we're definitely as an industry moving more online uh, as the younger generation comes through. I've got a couple high school uh, children who would much rather text or, or do something on the internet than pick up the phone and speak to people. Uh, but we also have a a whole other segment of the population that it that much prefer face-to-face -face interaction going down to the branch. So we still have a pretty extensive branch system, comparatively speaking, um, to the market. And I think that's something we'll always keep um, in place until we're forced to make that change. You know, Caitlin, let me, in terms of, let's say, where we are in Louisiana, what would you define as rural? In other words, would like a, like a, like a Hammond be rural or would more like a Folsom be rural to you? Yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of diversity in rural, but in, in general, we define rural as a community that's a population of 50,000 or less. And uh, a certain, I guess the be difficult to get your arms around, but density, I guess, would be the other issue. Right, right. And, and, and you know, there are degrees of rurality. So a, a lot of it is also just, you know, how far removed it might be from a, a metro area. And, you know, what, what really are the, the major amenities within that, that regional economy? And Caitlin, do you think, I, I'm hearing the lending part, but do you view yourself as more of an economic development company? No, that's a, that's a great question. And it, it's, you know, that I think, Billy, you had mentioned it a little bit earlier in terms of really this interplay between the role that we do as a CDFI and uh, really a community development corporation and the ability to really go in and make folks bankable 
so that we can create this matriculation process, right? That is really kind of where Billy works more in, in that space, which is really helping, helping businesses grow and scale. So where we really come into play as a CDFI, one of the country's largest CDFIs and community development organizations, is we focus on five key areas within Rural List, which is our, our access to capital grants and loans to businesses and to nonprofits for a variety of different community development services, broadband and infrastructure, again, providing uh, grants and capacity building opportunities to nonprofits to really understand their connectivity challenges, workforce development, so really going into a community and, and working on everything from financial coaching and literacy to upskilling, skills training, certification, so that we can really place people in quality jobs within that regional economy. Placemaking, which is really helping a community shape a vision of where they wanna go. So that's really when we come into a real community and we undertake a planning process with them, kind of a master planning charrette type of process where it's all about ideation and visualization of where they wanna grow. What is their five-year vision for their particular uh, community? And that, that community might have an arts and culture focus on how they want to grow in that particular sector. It might be food-based. It, it might be a healthcare sector focus, whatever that happens to be. We help to provide a vision and seed that vision and then try to layer resources on top of that to, to catalyze movement for growth. You've got to be in a kind of a, a strange place with a couple of industries that I can think of is that is businesses that are tourism dependent and then oil and gas, which the kind of the bottom has fallen out of. What do you do there that you've got a loan out to them? Do you continually work with them to try to get them through the period? At some point, do you have to uh, write them off? Or, but is it a lot of trying to help them uh, get through maybe a line of credit? Or how do you make that decision? Yeah, and I think that's really this relationship between the, the uh, organization like us as a CDFI and really kind of Billy's organization, more as a commercial bank. So the CDFI, we spend a lot of time on capacity building really going in to the community and helping with technical assistance, uh, whatever that technical assistance or organizational assistance might be in terms of providing our knowledge and our, our direct um, organizational knowledge to their particular lending issue, maybe it's an organizational management issue, maybe it's marketing and communications, whatever it happens to be, we help them directly assess that particular challenge so that at the end of the day, we can make a deal happen and we, you know, and, and hand it off more to a commercial lender also so we can grow and scale these sort of businesses. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with bankers Caitlin Kane from LISC and Billy Hoffman from Hancock Whitney. Billy, how would you answer the same question? I know you're a little bit different. I mean, you've got uh, your publicly traded company. Uh, you've got to look out for the bank's interest too. What do, you, what do you do when you've got companies that are just having a tough time? Sure. So um, in general, um, and every situation is different, obviously, but it's in our best interest to work with the client, uh, support them, offer them advice, um, and help them through the cycle. Um, and that's, that's one thing. Um, I was originally a Whitney employee, and now I'm a Hancock Whitney employee, but both banks have been around for 150 years. Um, so it's, it's pretty tough not to work with the client and go through several cycles that that we're all aware of over the years. Um, so in, to answer your question without actually answering your question, we tend, <laughs> we tend to work with them uh, as best as possible until there's a situation where it's not in their best interest or our best interest to, to keep going. 
it's something we go over in class actually and, and at Tulane is that people assume that the the bank has the upper hand in that situation. Um, they want this to work out too. Absolutely. Well, uh, on the hundred percent loans we make, if, if we're if we're batting ninety nine percent, we're not doing good enough. So for the most part, uh, we have to work through and make sure we we collect everything we put out. And Billy, I would think you would get when you visit a customer for the first time, uh, you might have to talk to them about realistic expectations for the business. Um, you know, everybody thinks we're going to turn this into the next Microsoft or whatever. How do you do that without oh, kind of tamping down enthusiasm for one? Sure. So, I mean, I think most business owners at the end of the day um, are pretty realistic on what they can accomplish in the market they're in, um, which is interesting. And, and Caitlin leads in into some of this. Caitlin's type organizations or the SBA and and Jacko and things along those lines. But when it tends to be a person we're meeting for the first time and they just have an idea or without the capital to support it or backing to support it, um, organizations like Caitlin's and, and the SBA or a vehicle we can get them up and off the ground, right? So we tend to come in, um, our type of institution or any big money center bank, but uh, we come in when the, the customer's already established and kind of know what they can do, and they might need us uh, to take the next step, or you know maybe their bank is not uh, as helpful with them relative to advice and things along those lines. So that's when we come in. But most of the time, uh, the customer either knows us a little bit; it's it's a warm introduction. It very seldom are we just knocking on the door and walking in and saying, "I'm Billy Hoffman from Hancock Whitney." I I pretty much know where you get your money, Billy, but. LISC, what's what's the money behind that, Caitlin? Yeah, that's a, another great question. So LISC actually is, is pretty unique that we, we, we do a lot of our own in fundraising. So we fundraise from private sources, philanthropic sources. We also receive a lot of different public agency funds. And then we also in turn act as a philanthropy. So we grant money out. And oftentimes this money that we grant out and put out on the street might be in the form of small business grants to help uh, small and micro type enterprises uh, throughout the country and in rural America. Uh, could also be in the form of loans and a variety of other sources. And Caitlin, um, in terms of uh, market share and all of that, uh, do, you think, do you think rural America is kind of the, the forgotten market? I mean, you're, you're in there and you're, you know, it isn't chock full of bankers and investment firms, I would imagine. No, it's not. It, it, it's kind of the unheard voice that needs to learn to roar. And <laughs> yeah, I, right. And so it's there needs to really be a coveted investment strategy for rural America. It is full of innovation. You know, rural America, there's so much going on within the agricultural sector, which is high tech, by the way. I think there's this misconception that agriculture is this kind of antiquated, um, you know, farmer with a till type of industry which is it's very high tech, drone oriented. There's a, there's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of research happening throughout rural America, especially in Louisiana and on the agricultural fishing side sector. Uh, and it's incredibly diverse. You know, there are, a, a, there's a lot of diversity within rural America and, a, you know, and just so many assets to take advantage of and, and so many assets from which we're deriving 
all these other economic sectors that it warrants its own unique strategy because of the unique nature of these communities. And we're actually seeing a shift right during this, this time when people are starting to move a little bit more out of the cities into some of these more rural areas and they're being challenged. You know, there's some great assets coming in and now they're also experiencing for the first time this sort of connectivity challenges. So we're, we're definitely seeing that as one of the most pressing issues for the years ahead. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this, uh, Billy, that Caitlin mentioned financial literacy and getting everybody bankable and all that such. But I think what a lot of people don't realize about your side is that you're constantly upskilling as a banker. I, and one of the things I noticed uh, in your background information is you, you attended the uh, LSU Graduate Banking School um, to hone up on your skills. I remember I, I gave a lecture over there and I, they asked me to speak at 930 at night. So I assume you're in this is some sort of crazed boot camp you were attending, but you, you constantly need need more education, I guess. Uh, well, absolutely. The I mean, I've been doing this 22 years now, and the amount of regulation uh, required of banks by the government has changed tenfold in those years. So um, our world is constantly changing, and that means our clients' world is constantly changing, too, because we're all at, always asking for more and more information from them. Uh, that we weren't 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So, uh, funny story, but uh, when I first started at the bank, and I got somebody who retired his desk, and there were literally promissory notes where you just filled in the interest rate and the amount and when it was due. And it's, it's a little more. It's come a long way yeah, since then. It's come a long way. And then, Caitlin, let me just ask you about one of the things that's it's kind of a intriguing here. And actually, I'm sorry, I could actually to both of you is. How do you get people to feel ex- um, comfortable with debt? Maybe we'll start with Billy. Uh, you know, maybe they're, you know, it's like my my parents grew up in the Great Depression, and one of the things that was hammered into me is, you know, don't take out any debt. Um, how do you get people to, to understand debt? Well, there's a lot of education on our part towards the client, but it's amazing talking about your parents, but the generation of clients that we meet with, be it the first generation of a company or second or third, to, the conversations are completely different and the, the risk appetite is completely different. And it's it's different from industry to industry. Um, and I can tell you which industries enjoy risk more than those that don't. But um, not to beat, beat the dead horse, but there's a lot of education between us and the client and there's a lot of interaction and there's a, a trust factor there. So um, while a company might you know, be financially solvent enough to get a loan of X amount, they don't need it. Um, and generally the client doesn't know exactly what they need and how much. So we spent a lot of time with them, the CPAs, their, their attorneys to make sure we're not doing anything relative to their tax situation, the way we structure, structure our loans. And we meet with them quite a bit. Um, it's, it's an ongoing process at minimum. We'll meet with most of our, our larger clients quarterly, but some might be monthly. Some don't want to see us once a year if, if we bring them a note to renew a line of credit. So it's possible. That's what it is. It's the line of credit that is kind of a nice uh, foray into all this, I would imagine. They, uh, and Caitlin, what about yourself? When you walk in the door or your, your people walk in the door to a new town, I mean, it's got to be pretty much open arms or between the grants and the low interest loans and all that. Or is there a certain uh, wall you've got to climb as well? No, absolutely. You know, we rely so much because we're, we're, we're really... We're nationwide. And so our strength really comes from our partnership network on the ground. 
and so much of our ability to understand where the investment opportunities are and through our relationships with those community development organizations, those EDOs, those other stakeholders that we have throughout the country. So we're constantly in lockstep with our partnership organizations to kind of assess and do a landscape analysis of needs and opportunities and pivot accordingly. And a lot of that has been information that has fed back into you know, what are the immediate needs and what have we been seeing that through the small business grants and technical assistance that have been rolling out um, as, a, as a response to those immediate COVID needs. Um, but Billy had alluded to earlier the fact that so much of his work is in the area uh, of capacity and really understanding where the client is on a sort of wealth creation. A little bit of a differentiator between our work and what Billy has been working on is as a, a CDFI, so much of our work on the wealth side is going into some of these rural communities who are financial opportunity centers. I'm sorry, okay. a CDFI is? A community Development Financial Institution. Okay. Uh, and so we have a model that we call financial opportunity centers, which are about really helping people in rural communities understand and be part of wealth creation, right? It's meeting an individual exactly where they're at. Because remember these rural communities, you don't have access to as many assets as you do in urban areas. People are challenged with childcare, transportation, a number of issues. So that needs to be solved for first to get an individual stable before we can start talking about other upskilling opportunities, workforce issues and other issues to create that wealth generation piece. So we solve for that and then wrap services around that to allow an individual to get the skilling certification that they need to get a full-time job and to be able to partake in this wealth creation economy. A few years ago, I had a guest on Out to Lunch who had spent time in federal prison for cooking the books of a big company to make it look like they were making a whole lot more money than they actually were. In the course of conversation, I asked him how he thought at the time he was going to get away with it, given that he was dealing with the existence or non-existence of cash. And his reply was, well, it depends on what you mean by cash. In an extreme way, this illustrates the point I started outmaking today that your relationship to money can determine your opportunity to take risks that, if managed correctly, will make money. Uh, having access to capital and credit is the lifeblood of American business and our economy, as you've shown us today, Billy and Caitlin, that access is not just for a privileged few or people with a business background. Investment capital is accessible and has a human face. Thank you both, Billy and Caitlin, for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Peter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Billy Hoffman, Senior Vice President of Corporate Banking at Hancock Whitney, and Caitlin Kane, Vice President and Director of Rural America at Local Initiative Support Corporation. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on WWNO. You can hear our unedited conversations and find out more about Hancock Whitney and LISC by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast anywhere you get podcasts and on our website, itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos in this show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at LaFleurphoto.com. One of these days, I promise, we're going to go back to hosting Out to Lunch around the lunch table. Until then, Commander's Palace is open for dinner seven nights a week. 
and brunch on the weekends. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. And our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week for more business New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Peony on Magazine Street, exceptional women's and children's clothes and gifts. And by Basics Swim and Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie. And by the It's New Orleans Happy Hour podcast. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.